Well, let me just recap. I just want to review on where we, how we got to where we are today in chapter 4. In the past three weeks, we've covered the first three chapters um, as we've covered this series, Living the Christian Life. Uh, the first week, we covered Paul's testimony, his convictions, uh, and his specific exhortation uh, about living in a way worthy of the gospel. The second week in chapter 2, we talked about the church's need for unity, uh, the need for humility in our lives as we looked at Christ and how he lived a humble life, and how after hearing who Christ is, we are called to action to be like him. Last week in chapter 3, we talked about the mindset we are to have when viewing the past, the present, and the future. In the past, we're supposed to count everything as lost. As present, we are to run with everything we have towards the prize, being eager for heaven, uh, towards the prize. And in the future, uh, we're supposed to view it as being eager for heaven, what awaits us in the future. Uh, and that future, that glory and splendor are not meant for us now, uh, but meant for later. The book of Philippians is full of exhortation, and so is this series, full of Paul's loving desires and hopes for the church of Philippi and for us today. In the final chapter of Philippians, Paul is concluding his exhortations and thanksgiving towards the church. He wants the church of Philippi to be defined by being reconciled to one another, having a joyful faith, and being disciplined in Christian virtues. As we live this Christian life, we should be doing it together in a way that people can see these three things in us individually and as a church. Chapter 4 is a great way to wrap up everything that Paul has been saying. Um, There are some final details that he covers that share God's provision in his life, but I want to focus on the first part of chapter 4, specifically these three observations. Reconciliation in verses 1 through 3 that speak to the need for unity in the church. A joyful faith from verses 4 through 7. A joy that comes from the peace of knowing God and not being anxious about the future, but trusting Him. And then Christian virtues in verses 8 through 9. The focus and responsibility that we have to do these things and not just know about them. So open up your Bibles and read with me Philippians 9 or Philippians 4, 1 through 9, and we'll get started. I entreat. Iodia and I, oh, I'm sorry, let me start at the first verse where we're supposed to start. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I, all, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. God, you are a good God. You are sovereign and you are in control. 
And we thank you for what you are doing in our lives. I pray that in this time this morning, you would open up your word to us, that we would have hearts that would receive. God, that you would uh, help to make us humble. And God, we want this truth to be instilled in us. We want to live this Christian life uh, to our fullest together for you. And so we pray that uh, this morning we'd feel encouraged and empowered to do that through your word. I pray that you would give me the words to say and the way in which to say them. And God, I pray that you would be glorified above all else. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So starting in verses 1 through 3, reconciling for unity. This is the start of Paul closing his letter to the Philippians. Throughout this book, we've seen Paul's love and affection for this church. It's a connection that goes beyond just commonality and respect. It's a bond founded on Christ and his love. And as I was spending time in chapter 4 this week, I couldn't help but sense this uh, the stirring motivation and desire coming from Paul towards this church. This verse, uh, the first verse, whom I love and long for, and then he says, my joy and crown. There's just such affection here. It shows the endearing feelings that Paul has towards these people whom he considers fellow workers, even though he is an esteemed apostle. The second verse speaks of the need for reconciliation, uh, speaking to these women uh, to agree in the Lord. And then the third verse points to the unity found in Christian community when he says, side by side with me and the rest of my fellow co-workers. I think these three things point to the importance of reconciliation. There's a need to stand firm and together and not let things come in between us, else we will not be the community that God has called us to be fellow workers who are citizens in heaven. So I want to unpack this. I want to start with the joy and crown in that first verse. Calvin says he calls them his joy and crown because he is delighted to see those who had been gained over through his instrumental persevering in faith. He hoped to attain that triumph of which we have spoken when the Lord will reward with a crown those things which have been accomplished under his guidance. He took their joy and growth in unity in Christ and knew of the reward that he had in heaven. And like I mentioned, this, this, Paul is so close to this church. There's a deep love uh, for the believers of Philippi and Paul loves them and wants them to, to be with them, even stating in chapter 2 that even though he could die and be with God, his desire is to live and to see them again and to see them grow in their faith. Paul wants to see them be all that they can be as a church. He then taps into his leadership as an apostle and encourages them to be like he is, calls them fellow workers who he will get to be with in heaven, and again points to the citizenship they share with Christ. How encouraging it must have been for this church for them to be called his joy, and how inspiring and humbling it would have been to be called his crown. In the midst of edifying them, he pushes them to stand firm in the Lord. Now, this could be encouraging the believers to, uh, to continue in the way that they have been or in light of Paul's exhortation from the previous chapters. Remember from chapter 3, Paul is talking about heaven and how we are to strive for it with our arms outstretched towards Christ. And I mentioned that heaven is something for the future, not for the present, because we couldn't handle the glory and the magnitude of, the, of God's glory right now. And so this verse is further encouragement 
to be present, waiting for heaven, to stand firm. Matthew Henry says, The believing hope and prospect of eternal life should engage us to be steady, even, and constant in our Christian course. Now, this was probably a steady church, but Paul is recognizing human weakness and reckons that they need encouragement for the future. Like a rock that stands firm when the waves crash against it, that's what we are to be when the troubles of this world come at us, to stand firm as fellow co-workers of the gospel. The next verse speaks of reconciliation. Paul then takes the time to address the need to reconcile between believers, which shows, and him doing it in this letter shows just how important it is. We don't know what the issue is that this revolves around, but we know that these two women are not in agreement either with each other or with the church. Paul esteems these women as fellow laborers and wants the entire church to be in union. So he calls for them to agree, to reconcile. Grudem defines reconciliation as the removal of enmity and the restoration of fellowship between two parties. Verse 3 says that these women had labored side by side, which is exactly what we covered in chapter 1 and 27. These women had stood firm in one spirit and in one mind and strove together with Paul for the gospel, yet they were still in need of reconciling. I think that just spoke to me in the way that even fellow co-workers, we who go to church together, we at times can be not in agreement and we need to reconcile. I personally appreciate God's word here as the damage that strife can cause when two people do not reconcile, that damage can be severe. It affects not uh, just the individuals in the argument, it affects those around them, it affects the friends, the family, the entire church body. And I think God uses Paul's statement here, meant for the Philippian church, as a reminder for the church today, East Parkway most certainly included, that we need to hold unity so close to our hearts that we are moved towards reconciliation. From chapter 1 through chapter 4, Paul's desires for the church of Philippi and for our church today that it be defined by unity. He also says that at the end of verse 2 that they are to agree in the Lord as a bonding factor to their agreement. He's saying that apart from God, it will not succeed in being reconciled and it will ultimately just fall apart. Christ is the key, the glue, the main ingredient in the reconciliation process. So our church is to be defined by a unity that comes from Christ and motivates us towards reconciliation through him. The last point from, uh, from verses 1 through 3 about reconciliation is that of community. Paul stresses the importance of unity once again for the sake of the gospel in light of this reconciliation. Chapter 1, verse 27 says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is another reminder that this Christian life that we live is not meant to be an individual one, but a life that is meant to be lived in community. Unity requires that we as a church be reconciled, that we have harmony between us. I mentioned a couple weeks ago the dangers of not striving together and the work that Satan can do to a body of believers who are not of one mind. We don't want to be that. We want to stand firm together. The ESV Study Bible says, Paul encourages unity among those who are striving side by side for the gospel. Paul did not isolate himself and minister alone, and neither 
can we? When issues arise and we are tempted to remove ourselves from the situations or be alone in contempt, we need to remember that we are called to unity. We are called to community. A community that we are in now and in for eternity. As Paul mentions the book of life as another indication of our future in heaven. So from verses 1 through 3, we see Paul's affection and encouragement to the church of Philippi. We see Paul's instruction to reconcile and then Paul's desire for community. Paul loved this church and in the current situation, he wanted them to handle it with a Christ-like wisdom and love. And now he shifts his focus towards what the church will face and how they are to face it. So now in verses 4 through 7, we see Paul calling the church to, uh, to be rejoicing in faith. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul alludes to the struggle and trouble and persecution that the church will go through by instructing them, by instructing them in how to handle themselves in life. I mentioned in previous weeks that the persecution from the world could bring a church together and it was from selfishness and conceit within the heart that a church could be torn apart. Having addressed the inward aspect again of the church, just before this he instructs them in what to do when the storms, the persecutions, the troubles start rolling in. Paul then talks about three things in verses 4 through 7. The joy we are to have, what we are to be known for, which is our reputation, and then finally, to trust in the Lord. So joy, reputation, and trust. Verse 4, speaking of joy, is not just a joy that means happiness. Paul is not calling us to simply be happy. No, uh, he's calling us to have a joy in God. The joy that Paul calls for is not a happiness that depends on circumstances, but a deep contentment that is in the Lord based on the trust in the sovereign living God, and that therefore is available always, even in difficult times. In the Bible, anything that was said twice was worth repeating. And Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. His instructions to rejoice and not worry is instead in light of that persecution to come. He knows what they are going to face, and he wants them to be prepared. One commentary says, Surely there are many circumstances in which Christians cannot be happy, but they can always rejoice in the Lord and delight in Him. Paul himself was an excellent example of one who had inner joy when external circumstances, such as persecution, imprisonment, the threat of death, were against him. This deep joy, this deep, deep joy is what sustains us, and it comes from God. The joy of the world, on the other hand, is fragile, it fades, it's circumstantial. If we were to rely on that joy, we would be overcome by any number of troubles or grief or pain. The sum then is this, that come what may, believers having the Lord standing on their side have amply sufficient ground of joy. That's from Calvin. Paul's re repetition only confirms when he repeats in verse Four, confirms with greater force that this should be our strength and stability. Through suffering and affliction in life, we are to rejoice in God. So let's not take joy in the world. God will give us the joy that we need. And, and that joy that we have from God 
affects the way people see us. And that leads into verse 5. Our reputation. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness is said in light of verses 1 through 3 and the need for unity in the community. ESV Study Bible says, Reasonableness is crucial for maintaining community. It is the disposition that seeks what is best for everyone and not just oneself. This is a call for us to endure all things with a patience and a sweetness. This is speaking to when we are not easily moved by injuries, when we are not easily annoyed by adversity, but retain equanimity of temper. Paul is instructing them to hold themselves with a peace and a gentleness in every situation, to use self-control over themselves, even in the midst of inconveniences and struggles in life. That joy that comes from within, given to us by God, is not always seen by other people, but reasonableness is seen by other people. It'll be noticed. People will see in the way that we live our lives because of the joy from within that allows us to be patient and gentle. It's a testimony to God, the way we live with reasonableness. While I was studying this, there's one example that stands, stands out in my life as someone who has let uh, their reasonableness define who they are and um, just embodies this so well, and that is... Uh, my father, my dad. And I didn't say that knowing that he was going to be here. Um, But all growing up, and to this day, my dad is the most reasonable, peaceable, steady guy that I know. Uh, Whether it's circumstances that we can't control that are just, you know, like weather or something like that, to uh, serious loss and trouble in the family, he has been one uh, who has been patient and reasonable through everything. Just a little story. Um, when we were, when I was little, my sister and I and my parents, uh, we were driving to Montana, and um, we got stuck in a rainstorm. And <laughs> my mom's laughing because she knows what's coming. Um, my mom was driving. We were in the back seat. My dad was in the passenger seat. And I don't exactly remember what state we were in, but out of nowhere, uh, a rainstorm hit. And it was not just like casual rain. It was the heaviest rainstorm I've ever, still, I've ever seen in my life. There was 0% visibility, just a sheet of water coming down. And what made it scary was that before this hit, uh, we were following, there were some cars around us. Uh, We were driving on the freeway, so we were going relatively fast speed. And um, (laughs) as this starts coming down, my mom's freaking out uh, because she can't see anything. That means that Tasha and I are freaking out because my mom's freaking out. And we look over to my dad, and he's got the biggest smile on his face. (laughs) And he's saying, everything is going to be okay. We're okay. Um, Which was very reassuring for us until the moment when my mom looked at him and said, what do you mean everything's going to be okay? (laughs) Which then Tasha and I started freaking out again. (laughs) Because she couldn't see the car. She couldn't see anything. But I just remember that my dad, in anything, was steady and reasonable. And yes, in the lighthearted situations like weather, but also um, in serious moments in our family, um, when things were uh, said were more personable to him uh, that were maybe hurtful or um, discouraging, no matter what was said, he was still uh, reasonable and held a peace and a joy um, throughout everything. And it's just been an incredible example to me. And I say that only to give praise uh, to God for the example that I've had in my life. 
And this leads me to my next uh, point, is that I don't think he could have done it without trust, the trust that he had in God. To live in this way with reasonableness and to be able to rejoice in the Lord, we must trust God. And this is the third observation from verses 4 through 7. How do we stay unified and have this deep joy in the Lord? By being reasonable, not being anxious, and to be humbly praying to God and trusting in him. It also alludes to the fact that our trust in God should be on display for other people. When we trust God in the way we live, it will be evident to those around us. Living without anxiety is different than how the world lives. Verses 6 through 7, speak against anxi- speaking against anxiety, are a reminder of Jesus' teachings in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, where Jesus teaches that we are not to worry about tomorrow. Jesus shares in that passage in Matthew that if God is taking care of the birds in his creation by giving them food and giving them shelter, will he not surely take care of us? Jesus speaks of a trust in knowing that God will sustain us and provide for us. He will give us everything that we need. And Paul, here in Philippians, is repeating this truth in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again. The church will surely face persecution and troubles, and we can be relieved of any anxiety, knowing that God will provide for us and that Jesus is returning and our future is with him. But saying that is a lot easier than actually doing it. We also covered this Matthew passage in our young adult groups on Tuesday, this past Tuesday, and the conversation uh, was really rich. People were sharing their struggles uh, uh, and desiring to control uh, the outcomes of certain situations or even how to get there, um, not just the outcome, but wanting to control how it is they got to that outcome. And then even wanting to control or be in the know of what God was going to do in their life. We discussed how sometimes those expectations turn into worry and how worry is not good. Uh, From this verse in Philippians, we see that our hearts do need to be guarded by the peace of God because without that peace, we worry. And worry can lead to us trying to control whatever situation we're in. And it takes, we put ourselves in the driver's seat and we take God out of that in our minds and we stop trusting him. And if we aren't trusting God, then we leave ourselves susceptible to falling away from him. We displace God in our lives. Again, the young adult group confessed that many of them are concerned with things in their lives, uh, but there's a line that they can't cross. To care and to be concerned is one thing, and that's okay, but to worry and to be anxious is not. So what do we do with our cares and concerns? Well, Paul encourages them towards prayer instead of anxiety. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says that there are four words here used to describe a believer's communion with God in verses 6 through 7. Prayer, which describes a believer's approach to God. Petition, which emphasizes a request, uh, requesting answers to, spe- to specific needs. Thanksgiving, which is an attitude of heart which should always accompany the prayer. And request which speaks of definite and specific things asked for. Instead of giving ourselves over to worry and anxiety, we need to entrust ourselves to God through prayer and petition with thanksgiving in our hearts. As verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be, be made known to God. It's one thing to say, stop worrying and trust Jesus. And oftentimes it may be a good reminder for us, but can also, at least for me, just go in one ear and out the other. For me, when I break it down, and I need to break it down, when I really think about the visual here of giving myself over to worry and anxiety and letting those things rule my life and how I carry myself, or entrusting myself to God, giving myself to Him and knowing that He will take care of me, the picture becomes so much more clear in what I should be doing and the need and responsibility I have to go to Christ, to trust him. If I really do trust him, then there is no need to worry. Just like in that storm, if we really trust God, we know that we're going to be okay. And my dad was assuring all of us that he trusted God and he knew that we were going to be okay. We can do this, we can have this trust because we know that God is sovereign over everything. God, the creator of the universe, who rules over everything, is sovereign and is in control. He is wise and he is loving and he will sustain us and provide for us. Verse 7 is a promise to us. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We have a promise from God. It's not a prayer here that Paul is asking, but a promise that he reassures us of what God will do for us. When we pray, we receive God's beautiful gift of peace, the reminder that God is sovereign and in control, and we can rejoice in faith knowing who God is. So I've shared Paul's desire for reconciliation, for joyful faith, and now as an application, I want to share Paul's list of virtues here. In verses 8 through 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. These are Paul's final instructions to the church of Philippi. In the past weeks, we've talked about instructions to advance the gospel, to exercise humility, and run the, run the race being focused on the heavenly prize. And now Paul is telling us once again to do all these things. From the examples that he has set before him, uh, before us, like himself, Timothy, um, Epaphroditus, uh, to Christ and the exhortation in this letter, it's time to practice all these things. It's more than just knowing them. It's more than just knowing about who God is. It's about being called into action, about living this Christian life. Verse 8 is what the church of Philippi is to be consumed with, to fill their minds with these things. The desire is that by, by doing this, it will inspire worship of God and service to others. This list is exhortation that relates to all of life for the believer. If we were to make a to-do list of this series, Living the Christian Life, this would be it. Do these things. Think on these things. I'm sorry, too. <laughs> this is our application in verse 8. I want to take a closer look at these things. Whatever is true and whatever is honorable. These virtues should be seen uh, through our words and actions. 
and our behavior, how we respond to circumstances and our conditions in life should show a decency and integrity that is of Christ. Honorable and noble um, brings this idea of dignified or of the highest standard. That's who we are to be. And then it says, whatever is just, whatever is pure. Uh, Some versions say whatever is right. This addresses our motives and our heart and how they are to be aligned with God's law and standards of righteousness in our dealings with those around us. We are to be conformed to those standards. Whatever is pure means without sin and untarnished. This alludes to refraining from things that are um, refraining from things that are filthy and of the world. And then we have whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, as uh, some versions say admirable. And this implies that doing these things will make us beloved, well spoken of, well thought of by others, and therefore pointing people to Christ. It speaks more of a peace rather than of conflict. Commendable or admirable conveys the idea of being positive and uplifting rather than negative or destructive. And then if there's anything, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, this refers to things of virtue and encourages us to really think about what is worthy of praise. We as Christians know that there is nothing in this world to give praise to, but God is the only one deserving of our praise. But is that true of us? Are we only giving praise to God? Or are we seeking praise for ourselves? Or maybe giving praise to something or someone else? What are we consumed with? These are the things in verses 8 and 9. These are the things that we are to be consumed with. How great would it be uh, if we were known in this neighborhood here in Granite Bay, to be known as a church that is being true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, focused on things that are excellent and praiseworthy. We are to walk and abide in a way of virtue. Whether we receive praise from men or not does not matter. What matters is what God thinks of us. However, this idea of what men think of us can be of real concern. It can even stop us from doing these things. Uh, We covered these verses in youth group this past Wednesday. Yeah, I was doubling up throughout the week. It helped me a lot. (laughs) And after reading through and discussing with the students what it looks like to be these things in junior high and high school, I asked them uh, what would hold them back from making this a reality, from actually living it out in their lives. And what they said is that I think every person, not just in the youth, might have been thinking or might have said. They stated that, they stated that there is a certain fear or shame in, in running the risk of being rejected, being different, the cost of losing friends. Uh, they would be acting different than those around them and be, uh, they would be judged for it. Now this fear can keep us from being... Um, from doing this, this list of excellent things, of being virtuous. Sure, we may know about them, but are we really putting them into practice? Paul calls us to do more than just think about it. In verse 8, he says to think about these things. And then in verse 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul is saying, don't worry about what the world thinks. Do these things. And if you do, God will be with you. In verse 7, 
He mentions the peace of God, and now in verse 9, he mentions the God of peace. The sphere that we may have from what we will face from the world, from peers, from classmates, from friends, from family, is real, and Paul knows this. And this is why he reminds us of the ultimate comfort that we have. Not only will the peace of God guard our hearts and our minds, but God himself will be with us. What more assurance, encouragement, or peace could we ask for than the God of the universe being with us? God's presence brings every kind of assurance and blessing and strengthening to stand firm. This assurance is one, th- is one thing coming from Paul, but what made it, um, hearing it from Paul, but what made it more effective is also found in verse 9. And it wasn't that Paul just said these things, it was that he thought and did them too. They saw these words lived out in the life of Paul. Matthew Henry says, What they saw in him was the same thing with what they heard from him. It gives great force to what we say to others when we can appeal to what they have seen in us. Calvin says, The main thing in a public speaker should be that he may speak, not with his mouth merely, but by his life. Paul doesn't uh, just say that they should think and do these things. He also lived it out. He was living the Christian life. Are we being excellent in the way we live our lives? Are people not only hearing our words that seem to call to an excellence not of this world, but also seeing us live true, commendable, just, pure, lovely, and God-honoring lives? If we want the peace of God in our lives and the God of peace with us, we need to be a living example of these excellent things. And this is really a matter of the heart. For, if, for what is in our heart will surely come out in the way we think, act, and speak. If we are dwelling on these things, abiding on these things, in verse 8, we will surely start to live them out. So we've talked about the importance of reconciling for unity in verses 1 through 3. I've shared about rejoicing in faith in verses 4 through 7. And we've talked about living these virtues in verses 8 through 9. Even now at the end of this passage, I still feel the stirring motivation and joy that Paul writes with. And not just to the Philippians, but to us today. There is so much in this letter, and we've touched on just some of the truths in the past four weeks. But let me leave you with one last thought as I close. We need to see Paul's example and Christ's example and be that example Christ lived in a way that was to be followed. Paul saw that example and lived in that manner. We are to see how Paul and Christ lived and then be that example so others can follow. We are to embody these excellent things and not just think about them, but to practice them every day. And tying into what Paul mentions throughout his letter to the Philippians, we are to strive side by side for the advancement of the gospel. Let's be intentional with our example with living the Christian life. The ESV Reformation Bible has this as a reminder from Paul, that our Christian community is to be marked by unity and joy. Relational discord and unappeased anxiety rob our gospel communities of joy. God's presence means that we can cultivate thankful, praying, peaceful hearts marked by a joyful reflection on what is good. We, East Parkway, should be moved to reconcile for the purpose of God's church being in unity. We need to rejoice in God's sovereignty and prayerfully bring 
everything before him, giving ourselves over to trusting him, not giving ourselves over to worry. We also need to be consumed with these virtues. We are to be known, to be seen, to be heard in a way that points to Christ. And I want this church to be just a bit louder in this neighborhood, to be seen and to be known more. And not for anything other than for being a church that trusts who God is, who is reasonable and is consumed with whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. So let's live this Christian life together and to the fullest. Let's pray. God, as we sung this morning, by the power of your love and grace, make these things true of us too. God, we want to we want to be this Christ-like example all the time. God, I pray that you wouldn't uh, let the fear uh, stop us uh, from living out uh, excellent lives, Lord. Uh, things that are defined, uh, things that define you, God. We want to we want to have those define us. God, we want to be true. We want to be honorable. We want to be just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent. And this is all so contrary to what the world says that we should be. And so it's hard. But God, we trust that you will give us everything. You will provide for us. You will sustain us in every situation. God, I pray that we would have joy. We can rejoice in everything, knowing that you are sovereign over all. God, I pray that... um, we would know of the deep, deep trust that we can have in you. And for those who have that deep trust, I pray that they would be encouraged. And for those who are still looking for it, God, I pray that you would open their eyes, that they would see that it's available through your son, Jesus Christ. God, we love you and we give everything we have to you, pursuing you, running after you with our arms outstretched towards you, eagerly awaiting being with you in heaven. We love you, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen.